Welcome back, everyone, to Bar Talk, the Spirits and Beverage podcast and video uh, from Relief and Resource Company in Fenton, Michigan. I'm your host, John Foley. With me, as always, Courtney Booms. Hello. Mark Miller. Hello. And today is our first sequel episode yes. to Ooh. Rum Train 1's Rum Train 2 today. And the reason we're doing... I think a whole series on this kind of thing is because that rum is just a never ending conversation and there's a lot of different wormholes you can go down and a lot of different ways to examine it because island to island, bottle by bottle, it is a very different type of product. So we're just going to continue the fabulous content that we covered on Rum Train 1, which was very historically based and yeah. kind of touched on some just really classic cocktails, go a little bit deeper today. But as always... I am honor-bound to mention our production team at iLogic Media. Thank you, as always, for helping us put on these episodes. And those who are listening, please check out the other content. Actually, probably especially right now, because if you're a fantasy football um, uh, person, this is basically draft week, so you probably want as much of their content as you can get. So uh, let's let's dive into it. Let's do it. Rum Ooh. Train Part 2, The Reckoning. The Reckoning? The reckoning. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So what... Let's just get maybe a little overview on what we're covering sure. today, since it's we didn't really do like a structured thing like you have to cover this, I have to cover this, you have to right. cover this. We kind of each picked something that we're passionate about. Favorites. Yeah. Why don't you? Yeah. What are you, I, what are you doing first? I'd like to kind of touch on the um, three main historic tiki bars. So um, Trader Vic's, Don the Beachcomber, and Khan Tiki. And I want to do a little highlight on uh, Thor Heyerdahl's um, Voyage, which was also called Khan Tiki. Which everybody had to read. I feel like in middle school. Probably. I had to read Probably. I think it's school. a little dated, but maybe yeah. well, I'm dated. Some folks will know what we're talking about. Well, that that shit was the hotness in the nineties. Yes. For middle school. And I'm gonna pick um, <laughs> what I decided to talk about mostly was was rum agricole. Uh, specifically the stuff in Martinique, but but rum agricole in general, um, fresh pressed cane juice rum, which is not as as common as you would think. So it's a really specific avenue. Uh, in terms of rum discussion and yields rums that produce like really, really cool flavors and very different flavors. So we're going to be talking about Martinique and um, Haiti for the most part on my side. Excellent. I chose to do a Jamaican rum. So in comparison to rum agricole, Jamaican rum is generally um, all molasses mm -hmm. distilled. Um, so it's a little bit more kind of like sweeter inherently. And actually uh, in Jamaica, they're not allowed to add any extra sugar to it. So it's all natural. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it can also produce rums that are really, really funky. funky so it'll, it'll yes. be fun to talk about the differences between those and these. And then we have um, a bit of a surprise later on in the in the show because the the influx of new products and the scheduled recording for this particular podcast really kind of came together nicely. And we've got some cool new rums that none of us have ever tried. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be fun. You want to lead us off? Oh, Courtney, sure. you want to talk about yeah. you want to go rum? Let's bars, yeah. rum. Start with some history and then go into flavor profiles and okay. So you want to go production first. and things like that? That's if you don't mind. Right. mind. Hell yeah, I'd rather run it. Um, so for people who know a little bit about tiki history in general, there was a, a huge proportion of explorers heading out into the Polynesian islands as they become more like well known and people hear about like all this really lush, um, exquisite island life and like all these different native birds and plants that were like never seen before and that the islanders are really carefree, like loving life and living out there as if it was the proverbial, um, you know, uh, 
where Adam and Eve are from. Eden. The Eden. proverbial Eden. Garden of Eden. It's been a minute yeah. since I went yeah. to catechism. Sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, and so people start exploring. People who have boats and have the ability, the, the resources, and they'll take some some natural travelers with them, and they'll head out. And and it just was everything they wanted and more, apparently. Now it's just um, also inherently part of kind of colonialism and, and, and exploring uh, far outreaches in general. And after some time, um, you're going to see... The likes of Captain Cook and Captain um, Hook, Captain Cook, C O O K. He goes different dude. Hawaii, <laughs> and um, uh, there's like part of Native Hawaiian um, lore that says that someone will come from the sea, and they're like basically demigods. They're like the equivalent of like the Hercules in, in the in the Polynesian islands and things like that. And so Cook actually gets mistaken for a god at one point, and then um, then he starts like treating people really poorly, and things go bad, and, and there's big brawls and pretty sure some people get eaten at uh, one point or another as well. This is this is just lore. I don't think actually people are eaten. So take this with a grain of salt. But generally, uh, it's wild and crazy out there. And people just want to go see it. It's like the Wild West Frontier as well as this uh, slice of Eden out in the islands. And um, you also have, uh, during the First World War, um, people are traveling outside of their, their boundaries for that reason, for the war effort. And there are bases and places in Polynesia where people are staying um, for that reason as well. So there's a place for you to stay and it's easier to get out there than it ever has easier been. Easier to get out there yeah. than it ever has been. You've got the boats made for it. You've got the supplies out there um, in some cases. So um, some of this eventually comes back to the U.S. and uh, you get merchant traders out there. And in particular, there's a merchant trader um, who goes by the name of Ernest, Ernest excuse me, Raymond Beaumont Gant. Um, his grandfather was a trader out there first. He decides to go with him. So by the time he's 18, he's seen more of the Caribbean than possibly anyone else in his general area, which is California. And his parents um, know that he's got this love for travel. They decide to let him choose whether or not they want to take his college fund to go to school or to use it to explore with his granddad further out into the islands. And he chooses the latter for um, for the sense of adventure and and. Um, heroism probably as well and um yeah so he starts an import export business with his granddad on their yacht and he starts collecting different things from around the islands and when he comes he lands back in the u.s he decides that he's going to open up a little just a cute little shack for people to come and enjoy some exotic rums and some food that that he's gotten recipes from when he was out there and it's out in California, so movie people pick this up too. And he becomes a movie consultant after a period of time as well. And you're getting all these like really big explorer um, movies at that time as well. I'm trying to think of the big, big one. Um, well, I mean, he was he was pretty much active right initially at the 30s, 40s, right? Yes. Yeah. So 40s when he's opening this place up and he's starting to move into the industry, the movie industry as well. Yeah. So I think you've got stuff that uh, some exotic adventure movies like Gunga Din and things that, that start yeah. that, that become big. But then I think movies about the South Pacific in general yeah. are obviously a bigger deal after, um, after World War II. Movies and books. Yeah. So I'm just kind of looking through it. His Majesty O'Keefe was like a really big mm. one that came up from that time. Um, the Barefoot Trader. You've got, um, I'm trying to get a really, really big one. Let's see if I can find it here just super quick. Uh, I can't, but it'll come to me. So anyway, movies get really popular and he's starting to get celebrities coming to his little like hut bar basically. 
And as he grows this fame, he realizes that he can't just be serving like daiquiris and like really quote unquote plain style drinks. He's starting to like create these, what he did, he develops into rum rhapsodies. So it's built along the same structure as uh, Planner's Punch, the, that old rhyme that everyone knows, mm -hmm. right? And um, these Which if you don't know it is um, uh, one of sour, two of sweet, three of strong and four of weak. Right? Is that like the one every you're doing? Tiki bartender probably has a yeah. tattooed on them or something like that. I but yeah, hope not. yeah, that exact. <laughs> I've never heard that, so thank you. You've never heard that one? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's an what old it's an yeah. old kind of like rule of thumb style breakdown for how to build like a, a larger form mm -hmm. juice based yeah. rum cocktail. Gotcha. And the four of week is obviously your like your water and yeah. your crushed ice. Yeah. So he's creating basically he's just creating more complexity to a situation that most people already are aware of as far as like the daiquiri build goes. Right? Sure. And he entrusts these recipes to him and four, they're called the four boys. They're um, Filipino bartenders who were the only ones at the time that he would entrust any of his recipes to. And then he actually had like this huge secrecy involved. So like they were all trained to never reveal anything besides like what's in this drink. And you would say like rum and fruit juice. What's in this drink? Some gin and fruit juice. What's in this drink? Rum, more rum and some fruit juice. Like they would never reveal anything besides the very basic yeah. amount of information. Um, but he is responsible, Down the Beach Homer is responsible for Mutineer's Downfall, Cobra's Fang, Vicious Virgin, um, other really well-known cocktails that, that just keep on uh, propelling this idea that the South Seas are amazing and you should come to this little shack. And so he does grow it um, through, through, uh, through his grandfather's money, his own money after some time as well, into this much bigger Don Beachcombers Cafe. And uh, he decks it out with like fish lanterns and like schooners that are like hung up in the rafters and stuff like this. There's bamboo all over the place. You've got your peacock chairs and all this kind of kitsch that people have grown to love. And um, so he's enjoying that. You've got Polynesian pop exploring, uh, exploding, excuse me, in the movie theater industry. And you'll see it in like home decor and things like that too. Um, Victorian homes, like you'll walk into it and then inside the whole kitchen is just decked out with bamboo and stuff as well. Yeah. And there were, I mean, this started permeating to an American culture after GIs came back from the Pacific, you know, yes. they brought an affection for that, that region with them. So it's not just, um, Caribbean influence per se. It's, that's true. You know, general, it's all kinds of Island. Yeah. Cultures. Yeah. The Island mishmash that becomes American tiki culture or at least American yeah. tiki nostalgia. I think I remember reading, um, not from this, I'm, by the way, I'm looking through the book Smuggler's Cove by Martin Kate and his wife, Rebecca. They both did a fantastic job um, in kind of summarizing or summarizing the uh, tiki pop culture. I've got some other books too that I'll um, show at the end of it maybe, but um, their collection, I do remember reading, if it wasn't from this book, it might've been from another book that GI is like the only good thing that they took with them from the war was like the extensive ex exploration and this like little island hideaway and stuff so when they brought it back um it was semi-americanized so like the original tiki god was like um for a lot of uh polynesia their their history was oral tradition and so if you didn't know the guy who told you the story then your granddad did or something but a lot of the stories would get kind of correlated into physical objects so instead of having like a specific great great granddad that you can reference you say this rock um this physical structure was where we originated and so it like tiki's gods and, and totems and things like that they get um like the first man lore attached to them 
because it's that physical reference that you say, oh yes, this is the oldest thing that we have in our history and it's related to us and um, how things came about. So it's a much more specifically religious item than it became Americanized and it's less religious and it's more of like a Bacchus God. So it's all about good drink, good food, good fun, good luck. And so that, jolly that is a jolly decadence. Yeah. yeah. So there is a, a, a disconnect from what we would consider American tiki and then like historic accuracy tiki. But it also ties in with what you're saying there, those GIs bringing back things that con they considered good luck. So they'd get like a tiki totem from something and then they survived the war and they're like, okay, this is really good luck too. Um, but generally, Don the Beachcomber creates a huge popularization of tiki culture. Later on, um, a gentleman named uh, Victor Jules Bergeron, uh, he's in, also in the kind of California region. His parents were French. He suffered tuberculosis as a kid and a bunch of other things. He's actually got, uh, he had an amputation of his leg from it. He, um, he starts reading these types of things in books and getting really into the culture because that's his version of escapism from his Ill childhood illnesses, basically. And um, later on, he goes to Don the Beachcomber's cafe and he's trying, like, he's, get, he's writing things down. He's trying to get recipes from, like, the four boys, the original bartenders and stuff like that, and he's getting nothing. But what he does start to do is he kind of, he realizes, like, the kitchen and everything is one of the big draws to the situation. And so he creates his own bar under the same kind of idea. And he, he'll do things like he'll, he'll go to movie production companies and say, hey, give these out to all of your actors and they can come to my bar and they get like a free drink or two before they have to pay for their own or something. And so he gets his own fame. He kind of starts off from the basis of Don the Beachcomber and then builds it into his own thing. He goes extravagant with the decor. And that's actually where the Trader Vic um, nickname comes from, is he would very commonly trade a few drinks for something that you had collected yourself on the South Seas Adventure or something like that, or in a garage sale or whatever, it didn't really matter, but he, that was where the Trader Vic uh, nickname came from. And as you're mentioning all this stuff, what I'm thinking about, I think, is uh, one of the reasons why this type of drink and restaurant culture had to have been very, very attractive is, I think that we, got, we all go out, you know, as a way to escape the day-to-day -day things that we have oh, to deal with, yeah. right? And, um, these types of environments, especially back when they became initially popular, had to have seemed like such a stark contrast to anything that Americans had had seen or done. So it seems like such an almost outlandishly relaxing overcorrect to what they usually are doing. Right. So these places seem to be of and purely for leisure when you know they're going there for vacation. It's very contrarian to the like general. Meanwhile, these people are working their butts off to try to provide these, you know these environments right. for, for us to travel over there and, and, and relax. But I think the warm weather coupled with all of the, the general decor and the contrast that it was from, for normal Americans yeah. had to have seemed like the ideal, most relaxing well, they've been rolling, environment to be in. Yeah. They would have been rolling right off of prohibition and they would have had a like yeah. really heavy kind of Christian concept of society. And then, and Polynesia didn't really care about any of that. That was not part of their culture. And so when they started bringing some of that back and they would wear like loose shirts and like unbuttoned and stuff like that. And it'd be very, for a while, I think there was a, a stark contrast between those who enjoyed tiki culture and those who were like, oh no, that's not for me. That's yeah, very I guess not I'm, American to me. It's the most, it's the earliest example that I can think of, of pure restaurant escapism. Yes. Pure restaurant bar, or bar escapism. Like almost everything else probably would have been similar enough 
to your experience. But that had to have been so stark and, and so readily attractive. And they did consider it for the most part. Like, um, so the early days of, of Don Beach, like Little Cafe and stuff like that, it was very, you just walk in, grab a drink, walk back out or something. But then as time goes on, these restaurants become like big, lavish, like extravagant right. things. To, like you would dress up to, to go, go there, yeah. to a tiki bar and you'd get like basically American Chinese, like Americanized Chinese food and things like that and very juicy rum drinks and stuff which we might consider today not to be specifically fancy because now it's semi-cheap to do some mm -hmm. of these things. But at the time it was, yeah, it was lush and extravagant. Such a you'd, have, you'd have like huge, huge facilities after time goes on. They'd have um, valets and you'd get like the coat check. It was like old school, very high class situation. So back to the, the, the boys and, and Beachcomber. Um, yeah. I remember reading that some of his mixes even uh don's mix one don's mix two like these yes. these kind of combined syrup mixes or combined juice and syrup mixes things like Florinum, were actually produced at a separate facility like basically like a commissary yeah and they would go pick them up and so even the people using them didn't know exactly what, what was, was in it what was they in just it. knew yeah. it was like mix one with right. spice six plus fruit juice mix four you know yeah. like whatever it was together yeah that is true and that um kind of leads or segues into uh, Jeff Beachbum Berry, which was mentioned in the last run episode very briefly. But he is a modern tiki historian who literally like went around and collected all these different recipes, either from like finding them on the side of a glass in a thrift shop, just coincidentally that was still existing. Or after some time went on, um, if some of these original bartenders passed away, he might reach out to the families who are a little more willing to give them their archives. And their archives might be exactly what you're talking about, like Don's Mix One. But then he'd go and he'd look through other recipe booklets and see where it can kind of get broken down from the other drinks. You can too. track some of that stuff with uh, receipts too. Yes. You know, what they were buying. Yeah. So the book I have here is his grog log. He's got like three or four other books too. But this one, literally, you can open it up and it will give you the drink name, the drink uh, build. And then down here, it will have like a little history, including where he either where he found it or where the original drink was uh, created. It's a good book. Definitely pick it up if you're into tiki stuff. Let's hear about guys on refs. Guys on refs, yeah. yeah. So um, Don and Trader Vic have the same kind of vibe going on. Um, but one of the gentlemen who creates the American popular tiki culture um, is a gentleman, he's Norwegian, named Thor Heyerdahl. So, yeah. I, I, I swear, because I read this in middle school, I will remember Thor Heyerdahl's name for the rest of my yes. life. Yes. Yeah, so there is, there's a lot of uh, movies. He's like a little skinny guy. Too. Movies, oh, books, like a, doesn't documentaries. Look like a Thor. No, really. Yeah all based on his travels. So that's what John's referencing in some books that um, I don't remember reading in middle school, but I do remember reading in general. And uh, his dad was a brewer. His mom was a master librarian and he was an avid hiker, explorer, book writer. When he was a kid, apparently he had a dog that was like half wolf that he would go like hiking up in the Norwegian mountains with and stuff like that. So um, over time, he met a guy named uh, Bjorn Kropelian, if I'm pronouncing that properly. He was a wine merchant who had visited Tahiti during the First World War, loved it, went out there. He ended up um, marrying a chieftain's daughter, apparently, and he lived out there for a good period of time until the 1918, the Spanish flu hit the island, and about half of the population died, including his wife. So he returned uh, to Oslo and donated his collection of Polynesian books that he had gotten there to the university. That's the same university that Thor was at at the time. He befriended the man. And then over time, he decided that he would um, take a journey out there. So he does take, uh, he takes a co-ed out there, um, another Oslo University student, they get married and they head out and they live 
native style. They go to Tahiti and they leave everything else behind and they just decide to like adapt to their culture, so to speak. And um, he notices non-native plants like sweet potatoes out there. He knows that sweet potatoes are originally from the Americas. So he devises this theory that South Americans were the first uh, to actually travel across the sea and reach Polynesia. And that's how those plants came there. There were other non-native plants like um, flowers and things like that too. But uh, that was the one that he specifically decides that he's going to try and travel from Peru because it would be the closest um, direct current line from South America to Polynesia. So he starts there and decides that he is actually going to um, build a raft from classic uh, blueprints, I guess Elements, you'd say. Yeah, Elements, yeah. He'd, he'd use um, classic tools so that he's not using anything modern in that regard. He takes a small crew with him and they actually do make the trip. There's a couple times where they have to get like saved and then they kind of restart, and but they do end up completing the trip and he therefore decides that it was possible. It was possible yeah. that his theory is at least proven in this regard. Um, he also uses things like um, the uh, Easter Island heads. He decides that some of those are very similar to other deities, figures, and godheads in South America and that they kind of cross, um, cross paths and that it's slightly different. There's another point that he says he, he found a deity in um, Polynesia that has, that has facial hair on it, so like a tiki with a beard. And he notices that most Polynesians, it's a little bit harder for them to grow any type of facial hair. And he concludes that that is also because it came from South America. So this is a guy from Norway whose father was a brewer, whose mm -hmm. mother was a librarian, who traveled all over the world and was really into like Explore totemic gods from other cultures yes. and building things out of raw materials and, and tools. Yeah. So this guy, 80 years later, is in like a metal band, right? No. <laughs> He's no, in like but, a Norwegian metal band. But, like he doesn't build a raft. Yeah, because but it would Thor, have been or done. probably pronounced Tor Heyerdahl. Mm -hmm. That would be a dope metalhead band. That's name. probably yes. already a metal band. <laughs> I would have to guess. So, yeah. We'll find out right after the show. <laughs> so I will say that. So he thought that South Americans traveled to Polynesia, and he tested the theory. He uh, did definitely have that kind of in colonial idea, though. That they thought he thought that it was a white man that traveled. Like, so, like, during Columbus days, someone from that vibe went into South America, and then they all were like, oh, this godly white man, so that they Gotta created a, a bearded figure based on them instead of, like, a native sure. South American. Right. Um, so that's, uh, even though it's still in some circles, um, it's basically proven the reverse now at this point. So, um, Tor... A for effort, though, Tor. Yeah. Tor traveled from Lima, Peru, to the to Wamato Islands in French Polynesia. But years later, uh, a Micronesian master navigator, and this is in 1976, Hawaii, um, all that Polynesian pop culture was starting to dip down again. So Hawaii actually hired him, this Micronesian master navigator um, named Pius Mao uh, Pielog, Pielog, I think. Um, I'm just going to call him Mao. <laughs> you boy now. Yeah. Micronesian. <laughs> He's one of six master um uh master navigators in the world at that point. Now he taught some other yeah, guys. How many so of them could still, there be? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seems so, like a very niche. Literally anyway. all of these all of these guys 
are hanging out in one yeah. room right now. They've yeah. got a club. They're chilling. It's got a. It's very, oh, very was, leather bound. I think I read that everybody's was, wearing ascots. He's really quite old at this point already. And well, so then they got a picture of him on anymore. the wall. Then he, he's there. I think he died in the. They all wear like monocles. Early two thousands. I just yeah. Pipes. I'll never be in that room. Yeah. <laughs> the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, Sean Connery scene where he's just sitting like that version, but with pie. They filmed pie that. Uh, they yeah. filmed yeah. that at two buildings for the most, a lot of it, uh, right across from where I was going to school when I was in Prague. Oh, dope! We look out the window and see like Connery down there at the very like, beginning. Cool. Well, in like that conversation, they filmed yeah. it in Prague. Oh, they filmed a chunk of it in Prague. Oh, yeah, they also were filming XXL in Prague when I was there too. I don't know what that is. It's a Vin Diesel movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I don't like, remember. So Triple X is the movie you're thinking of. <laughs> it triple oh, X? that is. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, triple yeah. X. Yeah. Whatever. I never saw it. <laughs> I heard it was but stupid. I think the second. So I think Vin Diesel was in the first one. I think the second one was like ludicrous or something. <laughs> That's fine. They were. They would both eventually be too fast or too furious for anybody. Yes, yeah, very true. That's very yeah. true. Well, someone who was also fast and furious was Polynesian micro, uh, oh, oh <laughs> micro master way. navigator Pius Malpaylog. He created a double hold canoe. It was not an easy transition. Definitely. We'll work on the segue for the next one. <laughs> um, he sailed from Hawaii to Tahiti in 1976 using only ancient techniques. Um, so. Polynesian culture, like I said, was dying out. So they hire him to kind of revive this cultural history to redo the Contiki voyage, which was the name of the voyage from Thor Heyerdahl. And uh, he, his voyage is called Ho um, Kalaia, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And, and it does work. And there's a huge cultural, Hawaiian cultural revival. So Thor's idea was that this current would pull back, you know, from um, South America into the Polynesian islands, that that was just the current that they rode. And then that South Americans stayed there in Polynesia. So with Mao's trip, the idea is that Polynesians went out as far as they could. And then when they were running out of resources or something, or were like in any type of dire straits, they would just hop over to the current and ride it back home. And then they would try again with more, you know, supplies or more people stuff. Or they, yeah. and then just do it again until they finally did reach someplace. And, um, um, based on the on the travel from Mao, the, it's more commonly likely that his voyage was the real recreation of the voyage. He also did later um, create a similar boat to the one that he used here, and then fully circumnavigated the globe. That's awesome. Well. He is a master navigator really, really after all those. So, yeah. like, as at what point, if you're an MN uh, and you haven't <laughs> traveled the world, are you are you subject to having given? You have to give your your title away. Yeah, Re the, the relegated is what they card. call it in the yeah. premier in premier soccer. Yeah, just bump you down to like. I don't know. That's a good question. Mostly master navigator. Yeah, semi navigator. Well, yeah, he, whatever. He keeps I'm just saying you got to lose it if you didn't. Apprentice if you don't. navigator. Yeah, you yeah. got to use it. Um, but his voyage created eventually the uh, popular, like '70s popular, um, uh, tiki bar strain. You might call it con tiki, which was created by a gentleman named Stephen Crane. He uh, eventually. He was, uh, let's see, married to a waitress. They combined, uh, took ownership of the of the bar and its satellite bars because they did grow. And then during the divorce, he lost it to her and she sold it off to a chain of hotels. So there's um, bars called the Luau or Contiki in like several Sheridans across the world um, that people got to re relive that kind of Hawaiian or Polynesian and culture. Beachcomber lost part of his stuff to a, to an ex-wife too. He did also, yeah. yeah so pre He had to kind of like start. Yeah. 
over again, basically, yes, because he, did. he lost yeah. so much to his ex-wife. Well, yeah, then cool he just, and fickle mistresses. And then after well, time, he just sure. lived in Hawaii and like was a Well, he was on a bum. boat for a while, yeah. too. Like, he was just basically living on a boat. Yeah. So, kind of like... Um, like Andy in the office? <laughs> no, I was thinking of... Uh, who's a Scientology guy? It was just like living on a boat so nobody could find him. L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, yeah. He did that, L. Ron Hubbard, yeah. He didn't create his own religion that I know of down the beachcomber. L. Ron Hubbard did. He did. He did. <laughs> the beachcomber did it's not. It's true. It's true. I will mention, too, before I uh, pass along, that the other book that I used for the majority of my information is by Sven Kirsten and Tiki Pop. Super good. It's in three languages. You should totally get it. Yeah, but beware, because if you order it, it might take two months for it to never come. That's on Amazon. It's not just happening. Yeah. So, Bezos is in space. You know, yeah, he's got sure. more important things. Is he right now? No, I think he came back. Well, good for him. <laughs> so I'd like to talk just for a little bit. Um, I don't have as much historical information, but I do want to talk a little bit about a, a, a type of product that I feel is super, super underrated and i think maybe hard for american drinkers to like if you haven't been there or been exposed to it before but that's rum agricole so when you see rum spelled with an r-h-u-m that is a french speaking uh, island spelling for that for that product it still means rum but what it also means is i think what it almost always also means unless you're just doing it for style but it means that that particular rum is rum agricole and that means it's been produced from fresh pressed cane juice only. So no molasses. And it's typical of the island of Martinique, but also Haiti and Grenada and some other um, of the Guadalupe Islands, but mostly your French influenced islands. Uh, R-O-N is also another spelling for, for rum, but that would refer to Spanish style. Ron um, is usually a Spanish reference to the word rum or word for the word rum. So Agricole, I mean, I first discovered Agricole because I'm in the industry, because it eventually just kind of crossed my desk. Uh, it's not as prevalent behind bars here. You don't see traditional Martinique or Agricole style drinks made as much in bars as, as other classic tiki cocktails like Mai Tais and Zombies and Scorpion Bowls, etc. So you kind of have to do a little bit of work to find it. But it creates rums that are very, very different in flavor and very different in style. Truly earthy and very, yeah. very of the place where they come from and much less sweet. Yeah. They've got some more kind of like um, alcohol burn to them. Alcohol, um, like yeasty esters yeah. and, and, really grassy, and no. yeah, I was just going to say grassy, earthy flavors. And they can be wildly different whether or not they're aged and wildly different determined on, based on proof. Uh, which I'll talk about in a second, but really why you see these these rums start to come about in the first place is that in the early 1800s, beet sugar was replacing cane sugar as, a, as the prominent sugar source for the world. And that drove sugar prices way down. And a lot of the producers on the islands that were producing cane sugar were deeply in debt. So they had to supplement their production somehow. And all of a sudden you had fresh cane juice uh, available. So you made rum. If you know, if the all the sugar to the world was coming from beets. You had to do something. And so you made what else you could from the sugar. So they didn't have to use molasses anymore. They just used fresh pressed cane uh, juice and they made agricole rum. Uh, I think what's interesting to me as a, as a student of wine is that Martinique actually has an AOC. It has Appalachian uh, uh, Contrôlé. So you have origin culturally, excuse me. So you have the same regulatory oversight for wine as you do for agricole rum from Martinique. 
which is fantastic. So you have all these ways that, that it's made that are specific to Martinique, specific to the process that create that very, very distinct brand, same as you do for Bordeaux or Burgundy or Rhone or Champagne. Mm -hmm. um, and this is interesting because it only kind of really defines the product in Martinique. It doesn't define the cane rum, pressed cane juice uh, rum category, and it doesn't define rum agricole. It's just about the rums in uh, Martinique. And they're always distilled to uh, 100, usually distilled to 140 proof, and then diluted to either 80 to 110 proof uh, before being bottled. Three months of aging is the minimum that you'll see on Martinique, and anything older than three years is known as rum vu, or old rum, which we have uh, stuff from. But like the, yeah. the, the prominent uh, producers you're going to see in in Michigan are Rum JM, yes, uh, which I have their 110 proof uh, white rum here, or uh, Clement. Um, there are 14 distillers on Martinique, but you don't, we don't get nearly, yeah. uh, the product from them that we could And Clement and, and rum JM, I feel are perpetually in, in, in danger of disappearing from the Michigan market because yeah. people don't buy enough of them. I would, I would say if you're feeling adventurous, um, they are certainly some of the most interesting and rewarding rums out there on the market to try. Mm -hmm. But if you only like extra old, dark, super sugary rum, you're probably going to want to stay right away from them. Yeah. Yeah. I would think. Mm -hmm. I argue that. But again, that's going back to the fact that, you know, different islands create different rums True. for different people, mm -hmm. you know? And that's kind of the beauty of it. <laughs> the best Mai Tai using Martinique rum. Yeah. A dry oh. combination with the orja. I don't know if I've ever had a... I think I would like a, a Mai Tai with a base, a primary base of, like, Martinique Vio or Rum yeah, food. and then a secondary of like Smith and Cross Jamaican, mm -hmm. and then move forward. Grassy, herbal, funky. Yeah. But I'll put Jamaican Navy rum in anything. But yeah, uh, the other primary uh, production region for agricole is Haiti, and there's a whole lot of Haitian rum, but a lot of it doesn't leave Haiti. Uh, you've got all of these little tiny, like kind of farm distilleries peppered all over the island, yeah. but really they're making rum just for the little pockets of Haiti where they are. Yeah. Um, a lot of Haitian rum is made similarly to cognac because, you know, you have French influence and in distillation. So you've got uh, fresh pressed cane juice that sits for two to three weeks and the natural yeast in the air in the region is what interacts with it and starts causing initial fermentation. And that is pretty much exactly how you make cognac. And you don't add any extra sugar or any uh, sulfur, similar to what you were talking about beforehand. Yeah. And this creates rums that have a big local yeast influence and a local earthiness mm -hmm. uh, to them, too. And Haitian rums are agricole, but they're different than Martinique rums. Yeah. I think but, in our last rum uh, podcast, too, it was mentioned that they have the same classification for age, like state. So they use like VO yeah. and yep. stuff as a statement instead of mm -hmm. 12 years or something. Yeah, so like Barbicord does, I mean, it calls itself the, the, the first one, the first dark rum on the market. They have a white rum too. It's, they say three star, mm -hmm. but it's four year. And then the five star is uh, eight years. So they do have some, some house specific classifications yeah. for age, but then they also list the age too. Sorry, I said as scotch. I was thinking of the Solera method with, with scotch yes. and rum. rum. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> But anyhow, we were going to talk about Barbancourt separate from this. We just mentioned Barbancourt today because we're featuring it in yep. your um, obscure but awesome. Obscure but awesome. Yeah, category. we were going to feature it, in the Barbancourt and obscure but awesome. But uh, since it's from Haiti, it kind of worked into what you were already talking about. So. Yeah. 
Should we try a pour of it? I've I haven't had barbancore in, yeah. in forever. <laughs> Rum barbancore. All right, so four years old, yes. It's a much drier smell than no, I mean, agricole rum is super dry, yeah, and that's where those alcohol flavors and kind of aromas can shine through, which make people it can turn people off. But it once you realize it is part of the, the category, part of the style, yeah, it becomes easier to, I think, get around. I do get a little bit on the nose, though, a little bit of brown sugar sweetness, yeah, and this goes up as barbancourt gets older, right? So, this is the four year. Yeah. There's an eight year, there's a 15. And as they go up, it's not just brown sugar, like you say, but also I think burnt brown sugar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. It comes from that high proof, I think, too. But there's a lot of, um, to me, I get like a little bit of a rubbery smell scent out of it. None of the flavor. Yeah. Um, but definitely that scent. The same way that like a good Riesling can smell like gasoline. Like even though it's, yeah, petrol. the flavor is not like that. Yeah. The scent is really strong. Yeah. And being that they are on the same island of, uh, Hispaniola, I believe. Hispaniola, yeah. Mm -hmm. You can get uh, notice kind of a lot of similarities between this and some Dominican rums, like uh, yeah. And there uh, is yeah. there is agricole on the Dominican too. Yeah, yep. um, not all over it, but there are agricole producers on on Dominican and um, Trinidad too and Panama. Yeah, I noticed they're definitely more towards like you said, like the leaner end of the rum spectrum. Not mm -hmm. super sweet, not super heavy. Just kind of. They make more... delicate cocktails, but they can make very powerful cocktails Absolutely, too. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I have a I have a tea punch here with um, rum, James white rum, but it's 110 proof and it's very, very funky. And if you use like a nice clear uh, cane sugar and a little squeeze of of lime, you have basically this really interesting, almost kind of heady, deconstructed daiquiri. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, but much more booze forward. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful yeah. rum, barbancore, yeah, or barbancore. <laughs> so please, I mean, check out Agricole if you guys are really interested in kind of learning how. Truly, rum differs island to island. Yeah, I think. And how those flavors can punch. Moving yeah. on from that, let's talk about Jamaica, Jamaican yeah. rum Jamaica. for a minute. You've got my two favorite categories. I mean, we're talking about my two favorite kinds of rum, uh, yeah. really, which is agricole and Jamaican. Yeah, and it was kind of a coin flip which one I wanted to talk about. So I'm glad that you're picked up. Well, and interestingly, too, uh, well, the last episode I talked a little bit about um, rum agricole, but you kind of expanded on it. So that's that's good, I think. That's why it's a sequel. Yeah. The, what did I say? The, the reckoning. reckoning. Anyhow, Jamaican rum. Um, sugar was first introduced to Jamaica in 1494, is what I had read. Uh, came from the Canary Islands by that that sweet dude, Christopher Columbus. Maybe not so sweet, but you know. Um, the British had taken over Jamaica from Spain in 1655, thus introducing rum and rum making to them. Um, which they had uh, already been distilling on uh, Barbados. Um, and then from there, there was kind of like an influx of uh, rum distilleries on Jamaica during that time. Um, in 1893, there was about 148, is what I had read. Um, but then uh, towards kind of like the 18, end of the 1800s into early 1900s, um, the anti-slavery movement played a big part in kind of the, the paring down of the number of distilleries on Jamaica, because obviously it should be noted that with all rum distilling, it was basically done on the backs of slaves, slavery. Um, so now there are uh, very few. On Probably the more than any distilled spirit. Yeah, more than any distilled spirit. Which we question. did touch on in the first one. Yeah. yeah. Rum yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so now there are definitely less. Um, I couldn't get a solid number on it. 
Um, Wikipedia said there are only four, but I don't think that's necessarily accurate. Distilleries on Jamaica? On Jamaica, yeah. There might be four. As, like, as maybe like four, as like, far as like estates that are yeah. singular estates that aren't owned by other people. But like Appleton, for example, is owned by uh, Camp, nephew. Yeah. Which is in turn owned by Campari. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like um, Smith and Cross. Smith and Cross is actually owned by Haymans. I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is a London company, Haymans Slow Gin. Yeah, they're yeah. Well, they're basically they're sourcing barrels of rum. So right. is, uh, yeah. making that. Yep. Yep. Lemonheart is also a British company. Too. It is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, is Hamilton over there? Uh, Hamilton, Hamilton is in Jamaica, but is it? I believe so, but I don't British. know who owns it. But that's that's another one. Yeah, Hamilton yeah. comes yeah. from one of the other. Same ones. with like uh, Dr. Bird, which is done by a distillery in Michigan, but is still a Jamaican rum because they're sourcing they're their rum yeah. and, and their finishing barrels. it, and then finishing it in Muscatel barrels. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, you have a couple main ones. The oldest, interestingly, the oldest, the oldest kind of like singularly owned. Um, a state that they call them that still distills and makes rums is uh, Worthy Park, which mm -hmm. dates back to 1670, which I thought was kind of interesting. They have a single estate reserve and then a 12-year single estate as well, which we don't have. But Bring I'm it to us. Very interested yeah, to try. Yeah, I want to try it. Um, and yeah, just overall, Jamaican rums in general, um, like I said, they're distilled from molasses, which if you don't know, molasses is kind of a byproduct of what you get when you refine sugar cane into sugar. Um, so it can kind of be seen as maybe like a lesser kind of rum distillate because at the end of the day, you're just using byproducts of that. But something interesting that I have learned, um, is there's this stuff called muck and dunder. Have you guys ever heard yes. of muck yeah. and dunder? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Dunder. It's kind of a cool thing. Um, dunder is basically a stillage that is left behind after a pot's distillation run. Um, and the thing about um, Jamaican rum, similar to rum agricole, is that it's wild fermented. So mm -hmm. it's sitting in basically the wort, or you could kind of think of it as wort, like a, a beer the basically, beer, yeah. is yeah. Uh, sitting in what they call punchins. And, you know, there's wild yeast from the environment going into it. But what they do with the dunder is because it's uh, super acid rich, um, they add some of it into the fermentation punchin to create more of those kind of like fruity esters. That's where you get like the bananas, a little bit, mm -hmm. bit of that funk as well. And then muck, which they also add to it. Um, it's uh, basically a biologically uh, rich like bacterial culture, like you would have like mother vinegar, mm -hmm. yeah. which if you are... I don't know. I don't know if lucky enough is the word to say, but to like see like a mother vinegar in like a store-bought vinegar is kind of very strange because yeah. it looks almost like an alien brain or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but basically they'll, they'll <laughs> add that to it as well, which some of those, those um, like mother mucks, I guess you could call them. They've been kind of like keeping in like um, aging for years upon years, you know, decades. Oh God, decades. generations. Sometimes yeah. Yeah. Generations. It, let yeah. It, like grow um, on the side uh, like, of the Well, it, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, in, that's in brewing too. Like it that. creates a super funky vibe. Yeah. Hence the founder, the, the German beer is, is been brewed since like the 1500s, 1600s. And it's got, don't clean their stills. It, no, it's got a, it's got a yeast strain that's still alive. Yeah. yeah. Using yeah. That's insane to me. Yeah. yeah. Super yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, and so basically what the Dunder does is it creates more of the esters you already have in the fermentation stage, but the muck it adds new and interesting esters into it as well to add more kind of, you know, just funky flavors to it. Like, like I said, Jamaican rum is probably the funkiest of all styles of rum, very earthy. Mm -hmm. um, you can get caramel, banana, coconut, like it's super versatile in cocktails. Yeah. 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 Um, what do you guys want to try? I got I got a couple over here. We got Ray and Nephew, which is an overproof. We got Appleton Estate, the eight year, or 
your favorite? Smith and Cross. Yeah, I mean. What you want to go with? I don't really care. I, We're going to go Smith and Cross. Okay. Smith and Cross would be the pull for me. All right. Well, this pour and these tasting notes will be brought to you by Muck and the Dunderettes <laughs> on tour next summer. Should we just do a sub-consulting group for uh, awesome band names as we go along? Probably, Because yeah. I think this is like band name we number four like or a, five. Yeah, we should keep a running tally. Yeah. The, the Skags? All right. Yeah. Skulks. Yeah, the Skulks. Skulks. Yeah. The Skulks. The Skulks. So Smith & Cross, uh, traditional Jamaican rum. Uh, something to be noted, too. Jamaican rums are usually almost always done with pot stills mm -hmm. as opposed to column stills, which kind of help those esters work into the distillate more and add all those fine, funky flavors. Smith & Cross is also 114 proof, which is known as Navy proof, yep. which um, I believe just stems from the fact that it is the lowest proof uh, for which you can still soak gunpowder with and have it be flammable. Yep. <laughs> which is awesome. And uh, another thing So if you I, spill this on your gunpowder, don't worry. Just drink more of it and you'll be able to pop that gunpowder off, no problem. Just make sure you're in a large field with no one around you. Can I include my fun fact since we've just gotten a couple fun facts and I almost forgot to say mine? Yes, fun fact. Queen Elizabeth II, apparently the first time she ever tried a meal outside of the like uh, castle kitchen. Her bubble. Yeah, her yeah. bubble was at Trader Vic's. Oh, nice. In like That's 1937 awesome. or something. And you know she got down. Oh, she you know was she just going after that crab rangoon like yeah. a wild thing. Had a girl. So on the <laughs> nose of this, again, very okay. funky, but I almost kind of get like a weird kind of like bright apple thing to it. I get butterscotch well. every time out of butterscotch like almost too, any yeah. Jamaican rum I, I taste. I get butterscotch. Yep. And then on the taste, yeah, that butterscotch pops. Yeah. But still that bright fruity after like a pineapple maybe or papaya. Yeah. Aftertaste. It's a beautiful rub. Yeah, I like it. See, I, I, I like Smith & Cross so much I've started to define it by not what I taste from it, but the things that it makes me want with it. Sure. Oh, sure. Which are almonds and passion fruit and any sort of tropical fruit and pineapple and I want coconut I, yeah, it makes me think of so many other flavors because it is so versatile. Absolutely. And you can put a quarter ounce of Smith & Cross or a half ounce of Smith & Cross in a big bill drink, you know, with, oh, with 10 other ingredients, and you will always taste Smith & Cross in it, Yeah. no matter what. And probably the last thing I have right. to say is that if you feel like you mm -hmm. are unfamiliar with Jamaican rum, you're probably not because Meyers Dark Rum and their white rum are both Jamaican. Those are two sure. popular. And that's, yeah. you can, pretty much any liquor store you go into is going to have Myers. Yeah. Not to disparage Myers, which is not a poorly made product. However, if you're going to take this podcast advice, I think that I can speak for both Mark and Courtney. S uh, spend that same money on Appleton. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. go drink that. Yeah. Yep. Appleton is a really, really great example of, of rum that is fairly well known that will 100% overperform for the price every single time. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And if you got the coin for it, their 21 is dope. I almost pulled that to taste for us today, but I was like, nah, it's a bit pricey. It's <laughs> pricey. Yeah. It's the next Rum Train podcast. So this, uh, we, we, only... we thank you for listening to us. We have a lot of information today, a lot of uh, academic rum information, but I think we're going to wind this down with uh, uh, a little surprise tasting because Some we special have. special boys. Yeah, yeah. So we do these podcasts typically on a Tuesday afternoon. And it just so happens that a lot of our, our liquor for the bar comes in either at Monday. the beginning of the weekend or Monday or Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And um, I had ordered these, kind of they were allocated bottles, and I had kind of gotten them a 
few weeks ago and then forgot they were coming in, but um, all the stuff is from Plantation. It should be mentioned that Plantation is a rum, is a rum. Yeah, well, it's a rum company owned by Pierre Ferrand. So Pierre Ferrand, Maison Ferrand is the big company. They make cognac and they make curacao. They also make Citadel gin. And they source incredible rum from all over. And then they double age it in uh, French cognac barrels. So they've been able to build, I think, as much of a name for themselves rum-wise, at least with cocktail bartenders, as they have with their cognac or their gin. Oh, yeah. And they're sourcing, they started by sourcing just incredibly affordable, really good mixing rums, like the original Dark and the, the what is it, the three-star, five-star white rum. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. and then they, they put a pineapple rum on the market that was really good. They put an overproof rum on the market that was really good. And now what they're doing with it, I think, is pretty fascinating because they're they're taking and they're they're sourcing stuff from single islands and then releasing aged you know, vintage releases. Statements of it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, and each release is unique and each release is limited. Yeah. We're lucky enough to get a lot of them. So these are from proof lowest highs. So. Oh, from proof lowest highs. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna first start and try uh, uh, Peruvian rum, um, single island, Peru, age statement 2006. Yeah. And then um, a Barbados from 2011. So, you know, 15, 10. And then um, the Trinidad is from 09. And we're all proofed out around 100, 203 yeah, yeah, proof. There, yeah. Is Peru a little bit lower? Peru's a little bit lower. So it's 95 yeah, yeah. proof. Um, and we've never tried these before. We generally like most things that Plantation does. Plantation puts out enough to where, in my opinion, they usually make good to great rum. They are sometimes capable of making a rum that I don't like, but they never make a rum that's boring. And they, the island specific stuff does tend to really shine through. Yeah. The last Peruvian release I think was very, very good. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't remember though, um, where the original distillation influence would come from in Peru. Was it Spain? Was was Peru a Spanish uh, influenced island? Peruvian. I, it I, would yeah. not be French. Yes. No, it would be And Spanish. I don't think the Brits got that far down. So, Spanish. okay. So we're doing Spanish style. Uh, rum, <laughs> which usually gives nice big body. And these, interestingly, too, which uh, I don't know if any of the other, I mean, they kind of do, but the other plantation products, if you look on Stella. these ones, they have like an entire, like, like a sommelier. Uh, sommelier, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Like, tasting so, and like information. Yeah, here, just uh, distillery, uh, Cartavio Rum Company. It is made from molasses. Fermentation is three days. And this is pot and um, multiple vacuum column uh, oh, stills. Cool. Yeah, distillation nice. in 06, aged until 2020. And we've got 11 years in uh, bourbon cask and then three years in uh, Ferran uh, cognac cask. So spent bourbon and then cognac finishing. Um, and you've got esters and volatile compounds and dosage. Uh, it's all like dosage, excuse me. Yeah, I'll mention right here. So it's really cool. You yeah. can really nerd out on these rums. And yeah, I think, listed as well. yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, awesome. uh, Jorge Luis Rodriguez and uh, Alexander Gabriel. So you've got a really good opportunity to kind of totally nerd out on rum with the yeah. plantation releases. And I, I, I kind of wonder if what they're trying to do with. Um, this type of single island program is trying to build into, maybe this is a reach, but build into the type of conversation that people have when they have uh, about compass box uh, scotches, where you see this utter oh, sure. transparency yeah. and each of these releases is kind of its own thing. 
and you're kind of breaking a lot of the rules because you're negotiating, you're sourcing your product from the um, from the islands, from different distilleries, and then you're releasing them. But that's exactly what Compass Box does, and they do it really, really well. So I think that we're probably starting to have to change the way we talk about plantation if they Absolutely. continue to do things plantation like this. Yeah. A compass box. Hype the crap product. out of this. No, it's going to suck. Well, we'll see what happens. No, it's not. That smells delicious. No, on the nose, it, it's fruity, high ester. Yeah. It almost smells like a like a bourbon in a way. That jumps right out of the glass. It doesn't smell like corn sweetness though, but it does smell it does like smell rich. Yeah. Citrusy. Yeah, like almost if you soaked vanilla ex extract in like lime peels. Well, eleven peels. years in a bourbon barrel. Yeah, but it's not oh, just that's vanilla. An interesting no. description. But if yeah. you if you threw a bunch of like lemon oil in vanilla, that's yeah. what it would smell like. Oh, very subtle. Yeah, really complete on the mid palate though. Like it, it wraps itself up in this kind of like this creamy, candied type of mid palate, and then the yeah. finish is, I think, pretty nice and lean. Yeah, absolutely. It's lean, but like I taste a like an allspice or something like a. Yeah, I guess I mean by by that not cloying. Like I don't feel yeah, like, it's like, a I feel like my tongue is, yeah. Yeah. is coated in anything. And there is that kind of like slight caramely undertone in the background. Or too, like that, um, really nice. that like bitter cocoa yeah, on the finish on the very end of it. I think what I like about this right off the bat, I'm hoping that it's present in the other two, is that you've got the depth here and complexity and easy drinkability that I would expect from age statement rum. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it does do you it does do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, how old did we say these are? Do we know? This one was distilled in 06 and, uh, okay. and uh, 2020. So whatever that 14. math is. 14. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that math is. You know, I don't, you're the math guy. You handle money for this bar. Every now and then. Oh, <laughs> Five years. <laughs> you're never closing again. Oh, no. Winner. I mean, it's, I have to, yeah. <laughs> I have to close. Okay. Her. That's good. Barbados, 2011. Let's Barbados. go through it. Um, so we have the West Indies Rum Distillery, still molasses, uh, fermentation is three to four days, column and pot still. Distillation year 2011, uh, aged until 2020. And That's they, nine years. Yes. <laughs> and they split, Way to go, bud. <laughs> they split the difference here um, four and a half years in Brighton Beach, Barbados, in bourbon cask, and then they move it up to France. And do another four and a half years in uh, Ferran barrels, which oh, is fascinating so. because they're they're moving it, you know, across the world to yeah. finish it uh, in cognac. Demerara. Yeah, Barbados. This would be Demerara rum. And this one is also column and pot still. Correct, and we're up to one hundred two point two. A little bit spicier. Yeah. Yeah, you can already smell it. It's gonna be sweeter though. I like Barbados rum. I, I out of the three single islands i think we're kind of moving away in terms of what i was interested in and like my interest like i, I think peruvian rum is kind of cool because i haven't tasted much of it yeah i tend to always like barbados rum i'm not, I'm not even going to finish this because trinidad rum is awesome too but i just feel like I <laughs> there's really tasting, no rum that's bad i'm tasting a lot of trinidad rum but this doesn't have the, the brightness on the nose no, this, no, is no, this is much deeper sweeter and richer yeah, yeah. What's sweeter on the palate, too? Sure. Very creamy. Very creamy. Very creamy, yeah. I feel like I just drank some heavy cream. 
like no this doesn't this doesn't jump around the palate the way the peruvian does it sits and has weight yeah yeah it reminds me i mean maybe this is just the barbados leaf but it reminds me of like like exo mountain yeah like big rich kind of fat mountain Old we can maybe also attribute it to, I mean, this is five years younger than the Peru is, That's too, true. You know? It's not plain, like, unruly. No. It's like a salted it, caramel candy. Like a yeah, this one, this was very, very candied. And it doesn't seem like an endorsement because of the way we're talking about it, but maybe that's because we end up tasting a lot of sweet rum for our job. Right. This is sure. a very well-done, sweeter, young rum. Yeah, younger absolutely, rum. yeah. Uh, although... And it's got a pelican on the bottle. It does have a pelican on the bottle. Yeah, all the labels I'm loving those super birds. Awesome. I wonder if this would probably be more attractive to somebody drinking it neat versus a Peruvian where they might want a little ice. Maybe. I, it's higher proof, though. Yeah. I, I, like I said, Don't Get Me Wrong, it's a fantastic room. I think per, between the two, I prefer the Peru a little bit. I think it's a little bit more interesting. Yeah. But I think you're correct that this, the Barbados, it might be a, a good like intro rum to someone who See, wants to drink rum. Fantastic. Is, yeah. Let's take a step back. Someone who wants to drink rum meat for the first time. Let's take a step back though and, and realize what we're doing is total 100% nerd shit, right? So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so like <laughs> all of us like the Peruvian more. Yeah. Which means that by how it tastes next to the Barbados, all of you will like the Barbados more. Most likely. Yeah. Most <laughs> and we'll sell out of the Barbados yeah. in three days. And we'll have this Peruvian in January. But that's what this podcast is about, you know, kind of yeah. like digging into like intricacies and like letting you guys see how we as craft cocktail bartenders kind of assess spirits sure. by themselves. Yeah. Sure. There's like the, when we we would have been doing this off camera if we weren't doing it on camera as well. Let's say we've all got. We're not professional house. enough on the podcast to, yeah. to curb what we would normally say no. <laughs> uh, for you guys. Wine truth for y'all. We're basically just doing it the same way we would. <laughs> With a lot less swearing. Well, it was like a couple of weeks ago. We were like, "Do we? Do we really need to like rein in the swearing on the podcast?" I was like, "No, fuck twenty-one enough." Uh, <laughs> it is. It does have a twenty-one enough. It's distractingly hard to not swear. It really is. Yeah, yeah. because you know. Well, it's like, we've been in the industry for Doing so long. Your entire life. Yeah. I'm, I'm now to the point where I've been in the industry longer. It's like I've been in the industry longer than more than half my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it still freaks me out when there's like. Which is depressing and, and encouraging ID, at the same time. Drink still. And also, I think on the edits, too, if we get too rowdy with it, John will sometimes like bleep it out. So. I think he will, too, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so, so like here's our last one. Here's our last one. Uh, the rum train gets longer and longer. Uh, Plantation <laughs> Trinidad. Uh, we've got age statement of 20, uh, 2009. This is the Trinidad oh. Distillers Limited. It's still molasses. It's still a three-day fermentation, which... Seems like it must be the norm. This is four columns still, though. So this no is pot no pot still, still oh, which so is typical be... of Trinidad. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And then you've got 11 years in bourbon and only one year in cognac. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're up on on esters and volatile compounds, etc. So I think that you're going to get you're going to get fruity and, and big and rowdy because yeah. we're also at rowdy uh, was the word I was going to use. Yeah, 100, 103 proof, 103.6 proof. And this is all you can ask from these rums because, you know, ideally, you know, it's 25.6 ounce, you know, in a bottle. We're probably pouring the 1.6 here. So if we, I, I would say if we could sell these in like three one ounce flights. Like a little flight. Oh, yeah. like I, little I, I would sell all three bottles this way because yeah. it's already you like know, kind of. Like a little kind of, kit. It'd be so cute. Yeah, it's already kind of sussing out that way. It that would, it would be, be so cute. Yeah. This one on the nose is already more aggressive. Yeah, it is. This is good though. It's, it's almost so hard for me for me to get past like the glue. 
the yeah the FBI. okay so you you had 11 uh years in bourbon cask and one in Ferrand. in Ferrand, and i think you can smell the bourbon cask in this a mile away absolutely yeah. this doesn't smell like a bourbon cask this smells like walking into a rick house it really it does, does yeah. smell yeah this smells like, like the, the, the room and the wood like the and the moisture yeah, yeah, yeah. and and all of that all of that shit that you smell in a rick house that if you're a spirits person you walk in you're like that's a great room yep let's just have lunch <laughs> just in here just want to be in it yeah <laughs> when we went down to kentucky last time we were touring barton and we walked past and and my partner john was like do you is someone cooking cornbread and i was like nope nope that's just the rick house yep. we're about to enter yeah this, is this really I nice. think, is, is the most interesting out of all of them. This will divide people the minute they yeah, try it. Absolutely, yeah. Because, like, the only thing I can smell is Elmer's Blue, but I taste a whole lot more. There's so much else going on. Yeah. See, I really love the smell, and I I think this this rum is fantastic. I'm not mad about it actually. when I describe it as glue smelling, by the way. There's a weird, like, silky, like, lean, boozy thing that it does as it slides down the palate. It doesn't really spread it this way, the way, no, like, the Barbados like, does. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a truck, and I think it's great. The high proof is there. I mean, it doesn't hide. I get a lot of. There's something I'm tasting though. That maple syrup is what I'm getting. Maybe that's what it is. But it's like I feel like but you don't dry. get it in a lot of other rooms. Yeah, yeah, that's why it's weird. Yeah, because like you, you feel like your palate should be tasting sweetness, which it is there. I'm expecting viscosity, and yeah. I don't get any of it. Yeah, no. like it's not really creamy at all, but it tastes like it should be. Yeah. No. Weird. That is interesting. Like yeah. That's super cool. Volatile compounds, 525, the highest out of all of them. That's true. I don't know what that means, but it certainly means something. <laughs> well, that's a good way to get a, 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 you know, kind of a start on a comment thread. Right. Yeah. If anybody's watching, yeah. you guys can all argue about volatile compounds, but please do so while drinking rum, because I would love to see how it devolves yeah. as you guys comment. Yeah. I want to look at that chat thread. I just want to be a little If we even get it, um, I'll be really happy. Yeah, it should be said, like, you know, if you guys want to comment on, on, our videos let us know what yeah you actually see, what you i would like what you don't like i would 100 percent do a mailbag episode if we Which got, I really want to do if we got oh. enough comments and if people yeah. actually want us to answer bluntly and honestly at the end of the show probably after we've been drinking we will totally do we will absolutely do do and just add a couple comment questions for the end of the show yes, yes. I agree. comment questions for the end of this show any show future well shows. in the future shows yeah. how about we're doing the future shows yeah um, I would like to also state, too, we have two kind of landmarks today. First being, we this do. is our 10th episode oh my. of Yay. Bar Talk. So cheers to us, guys. Oh. <laughs> Look at the good pleasure stuff. doing it with you guys. At the very beginning of this, it was just going to be John and I doing it. And Courtney is kind of like a guest every now and then. But she really she adds that. Yeah. She became that extremely spice. obvious. Just looped on to all you guys. One episode in that we needed her to yeah. be in this Aww. as well. Because you don't want to look at our ugly mugs all day. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and also, too, this will, I believe, be our first official episode that is over an hour long. Hey! Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Look at us. So we should probably start wrapping it up. <laughs> All right. Well, um, get with us for our next episode, which is going to be um, Muck and the Dunder Dunderettes. Muck and the Dunderettes. Um, yeah, it's going to be live. Stream of we'll be playing live, and um, the three of us will just be drinking out of rum bottles and partying the whole time. 
going to be a lot of lights. It's going to be really great. Or we'll decide at the last minute that maybe we don't have the budget for Muck and the Dunderettes because they don't play for cheap. And we will get them uh, at another time and just do a normal old Bar Talk episode. Insanely expensive fictional band. (laughs) Well, they'll be real by the next episode. Thank you very much for joining us. We love having you. We love having you listen to all of the nerdy things that we have to say about booze. For Courtney and for Mark, Bar Talk episode 10. See you next time. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Because it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs>